Having a healthy mindset is so important in the performing arts, and I'm so happy it's a subject that's getting talked about more and more. I'm particularly interested in this topic, and it's one of the drives for beginning this podcast and my studies to be in the mental health profession. I was so fortunate to have this special guest on my podcast, introducing the remarkable Terry Hyde, MA, MBACP psychotherapist slash counselor from counselingfordancers.com. Terry danced with the Royal Ballet, London's Festival Ballet, which is now EMB, dancing principal roles and performed in West End musicals, film, and TV. Terry's journey to becoming a therapist is fascinating. He truly understands the needs of the arts because of his background. This is a conversation that's so helpful and inspiring. Are you ready? Quick message before we get started. Please don't forget to click the follow button as it helps to boost the show. And if you want to watch the full podcast plus behind the scenes, please subscribe to Patreon. The details are in the show notes. Thank you so much. Now, here's the show. Tell me about your days as a ballet dancer in the 60s and how it differs from the world of ballet today. There is a lot more competition um, and a lot more turning in um, aggression on people on, on oneself on people's selves you know because of the competition you know mm-hmm. I'm not good enough there was a there was a load of I'm not good enough back then but there is so much competition now and the technique is so much better there's the overstretching which we never did back in the 60s uh, there was never the overstretching I mean as long as we could get to a reasonable height uh, in developé or, or in splits or anything like that. But the overstretching now is so bad. Do you think it um, was like, it was more about the artistry and how you were portraying the characters back then? It was much more about that. Yeah, it was all performance. Mm. Um, and technique was important, uh, but it was performance. You know, So in the, in the Royal Ballet Touring section that I was in, we were doing eight shows a week. Um, and I'm very pleased that I went into the touring section rather than into the Covent Garden, the main company, because they only had a few performances a week. So it, they they really didn't get... Well, they were sharing the opera house with uh, the opera company mm. and they really didn't get the performance numbers up. And now they've got different uh, theatres within the opera house so that they can perform uh, every day yeah, uh, but it it just wasn't as severe the training uh, in the UK that is back then that it is now. Although I did show you that video of the rehearsal of the gentleman with the the rope in yes. Dame Nanette de Valois' Rex Progress when she was shouting at me, <laughs> that was quite severe then. Uh, but it's it's not the way it was when I was uh, at the Royal Ballet School. So tell me about Dame Ninette de Vauer, because she was the founder of the Royal Ballet and you were taught by her at the Royal Ballet School. So what, what was she like? I mean, I, from the video, she looks very, very strict. And I think that's putting it mildly, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. That was her way. Um, and I was listening to an interview and David Bentley was, was in it, your, your, your old boss. Yeah. And that question was put to her, you know, was she bullying? And he said, in those days, it wasn't classed as bullying. She was what she wanted. That's what she wanted. And she was going to get it regardless. Uh, the teachers at the school were so fearful of her coming into into their class. You know, they, they were as nervous as the students. And of course, when you're nervous, you make mistakes. Rather than have a nice relaxed atmosphere and see how it goes, that type of thing, she would... And the fierce voice with a little Irish accent to it as well, that um, came out a lot. And yes, that's right. Yes, what do you do with it? And it was, 
it just puts you on edge all the time. And they were, the kids, we were so nervous. She didn't give us uh, classes, the boys. She was giving the girls classes, but she came into, into the rehearsals for the um, annual performances. And, and I remember just sort of sitting there watching her pulling someone apart. Wayne Sleep was a year above me and he was adored by everybody. He could, even if he make mistakes, they'd laugh at him. Oh. Um, but anyone else who makes mistakes, they'd have a real fiery go at anybody, as you saw in that clip that I showed mm. you. Yeah, I mean, I was, I did have moments at the Royal Ballet School when the teachers were very, very serious and, and cold in, in their approach. And it did make you feel on edge. And I remember making mistakes just because I felt so on edge and then get told off those mistakes. And it was just like, you know, I like a relaxed atmosphere. I feel like I work better that way. I mean, everybody's different. I do like criticism. I I thrive on it. I think a lot of dancers mm. do because it's your way to get to get better. You're like, I want it, I want it. And if you're not getting the criticism, you feel left out. You know, you, you, you want it. And yes. I just remembered there were so many times where I thought I love that I'm getting criticized. I just wish that it was a slightly softer way or a different approach, you know, mm -hmm. but I, I think that's slightly different now. Um, it, but, yeah. it is it is slightly different. And I know that there are changes being made, but there is still the old school way of, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it type mm. of attitude rather than saying that was very good now if you did it this way then you'd you'd really work it well or something like that you know just a different way of, of saying things and you were saying about criticism um in my therapy sessions that i do i find out from the dancers whether or not they can take the criticism because that's that's what a lot of the time that they're coming to see me about is because they've been blasted and i and i say well what's it like for you when you don't receive criticism and it's just as bad for them you know what's what have I done wrong why haven't they said anything and I turn it around by saying if they haven't said anything what does that actually mean means you're doing, it's sort of, doing a little, something good a little light comes up oh yeah I was doing it all right yeah <laughs> rather yeah. than the fear of not receiving a criticism or yeah. a correction I think I'm trying to like think back to one particular class where you know what it was it's because the teachers they would walk by people and if they weren't saying anything it was like they weren't taking notice of you at all that's mm. that's how I felt maybe that was just a reflection on my sensitivity perhaps being young not having that um that real self-confidence you know I needed mm. to rely on the teacher as an indicator as to how I was doing rather than me going do you know what? That was good. It was, I needed that external validation. And, and we all did. And I think we all, you know, the dancers still do now, but it's mm. never explained at an early age or even, um, you know, in each, in each year of school, uh, especially, you know, in the higher levels, Yeah. Um, that when I walk around the class, this is the teacher, when I walk around the class and I don't say anything to you, that means you're okay. And if they said that, it would put the students at ease. It would. I mean, yeah. you know, you remember in um, company class, hardly any, hardly any corrections at all. Mm. And and so it, you just work on yourself in yeah. company class, and that, that's the thing. And that was a, a big change for me going into the into the company, straight from straight from school, to find that the other dancers, for the young, for the new ones, the old dancers would say, do you know if you did that? So it was them that was correcting, not, uh, did you find that at all? I did, well, um, I mean, I was taught a lot by, it was Desmond Kelly and mm. Marion Tate, and yeah. they did correct me quite a bit in the beginning. So I found the, it was, it was nice, nice to sort of adapt to company life because they were doing that in the beginning. I think it was just, you know, it was very um, schooled. You know, it was like when I went to the Royal Ballet School, I had so much artistry and they have to sort of 
not break you down, but they are shaping you. You have to fit the mold, if you like. And then when you, yes. and then yes. when you go to the company, it's like, actually, do let go a little bit more. And, yeah, and that's, that's when right. you go, oh, like, not that you stop loving dancing at school, but be, you become so much it about structure. How am I doing it? How do I look against the other girls? How am I going to get through my mm. assessments? How am I going to get into the company? And then when you get there and then they're just saying, let go, Candy, it's okay. You're like, oh, mm. I remember that was quite a magical moment. I was so uptight. I wore my shoulders as earrings. They were just going, relax your shoulders, relax your shoulders. And once I got used to that, I found the corrections kind of stopped. But I, I took that as that's because I'm good. But it wasn't until company class that I felt that. It's interesting. Hmm. But it, it, it's, you were saying about, it's, it's the transition from the school. Now, you and I did exactly the same thing. So in January, so it's in my graduation year, um, John Field, uh, who's the artistic director of the touring section of the Royal Ballet mm -hmm. at that time, phoned the school and asked me to uh, ask them to release me from the school to join the company um, in a very similar way that uh, happened to you. Um, and so that was a, that was a Thursday uh, and I, I couldn't say goodbye to anyone. Friday I was off to Stratford-on-Avon and I found out the reason why was that I can't remember the principal's name but there was a short I, I as you know, I'm short in stature. They wanted the prince, one of the principals who was short, to play the Russian son in the production of Boutique Fantastic, which they were just putting on on tour before doing it at Covent Garden. And he'd refused. So they got me in. Now, as you know, and this is new to other people, at the Royal Ballet School, we do extra work, both as extras and also in, in the corps de ballet, uh, at Covent Garden. So the companies, both the companies, see us performing. And I think that's where they got all of that from, because I, most of the stuff was all character work that, that I did. And I remember, um, so I was fortunate to have Donald Britton as my teacher at the school and his wife, Elaine, can't remember her surname, was Ballet Mistress. And there was one, one rehearsal uh, at Covent Garden Studio in Barons Court, this was at the old place, and a guy wasn't there to do the Shardas in Swan Lake. And she knew that I knew it because we do rep classes and we knew the rep of the, of the Royal Ballet. So she grabbed me and said, you go in there and do that. And because she knew me, it was really great to be able to do that. Um, and I think that's where the, you know, they, they picked up what I'm capable of, of doing. So I knew all the rep in the touring company. And so they just fitted me in, slotted me in female garde, the little boys and all of this sort of thing, the shit shoveler. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> I know you said don't swear, but that's what we were called. Yeah, that's shovelers. fine. That's fine. Behind that the cart. <laughs> um, and I must tell you a story about that if we've got time. Yes. So we were, I'd fitted in and I did the, the, um, the Russian sun and we had the choreographer there doing it, which was brilliant. I was then cast as a shop assistant, which is like a soloist role, by the end of the tour. So I was rehearsing that into Puck as well in, in the dream uh, and getting all these roles. And I was like, first year called a ballet. And I thought, this is incredible. Really good. So the, the story about Fee. So we have that little horse in London in the southeast, but we were performing in Glasgow and they couldn't, they didn't want to take it all that way up to Glasgow from, from London. So they got a donkey. <laughs> it was, it was a trained donkey. Okay. <laughs> nothing nothing uh, untoward in that way happened. But um, Glasgow, and I can't remember which King's Theatre Glasgow, and I can't remember which theatre it was, has a rake stage. And for those that don't know, a rake stage is on a slope so that the people at the back <laughs> of the stalls or wherever can actually see what's going on. It's, it's not flat. Um, and there's a scene where the front cloth drops down and a little bit goes on to um, people walking across the front, including the horse and cart. Now, this is the donkey and cart. Now, the donkey and cart comes on. Um, I'm behind with the bucket ready for anything 
And then suddenly the donkey lets go and has a pee. Now, donkeys have a very big bladder and it just, it, it rolled down the, the, the rake stage into the footlights, which shorted. So sparks and noise oh and things like that, which upset the donkey. It reared up and as it came down, it put its poof through the drop that came down. So the, the, the flat that came down. Um, oh stage manager, and it was all upheaval. Plus the pee was going into the orchestra pit as well. <laughs> so they, <laughs> And you can imagine someone with a bassoon or something like that, they're going in and go, blowing. <laughs> and uh, so he tried, the, the stage manager called to, to pull up the, the front drop so mm. that what was going on. But it, unfortunately it tore because the hoof, the leg of the donkey was... Um, had torn it through and so the wood was on one side of the leg and the curtain was on the other side of the leg so they had to drop it they had to get the donkey moved uh away from the cloth and then the cloth went up and all of the dancers with all their wheats and corn uh etc were just lolling around as the, as the drop <laughs> went up we managed to get the donkey off and um everyone was sort of ad-libbing and ad-libbing and got the orchestra to go to the next bit where the the dancing uh, started uh yes yeah, so that was a bit of uh excitement at um glasgow Gosh. Uh, whatever the theater was <laughs> it's live theater ladies and gentlemen the audience were in hysterics I bet. and they applauded us um you know for carrying on as it were it must be really funny when things like that go wrong i mean we've had a few bits go wrong but that Wow, I never saw anything mm. like that. La Fumagade, that's the one where they have the um, the, the the pole, was it, where they're sort the of weaving it out? The maypole. maypole. That's right, yes. Yeah, there yes. was definitely an incident with that. Maybe it's the ballet. There's a lot that can go wrong in that ballet. Mm. I remember yes. I was weaving, it, weaving in and out, and I think, I, I can't remember who it was, but they were really enjoying their weaving out and just crashed into me. Oh. And then I was really like disorientated and I was just like, shook it off and then carried on going. And I was like, hang on a second. Why am I going, going against everybody? <laughs> <laughs> so of course Great it's supposed stuff. to all weave out and make this beautiful, beautiful plait. And then you go the other way. And yes. it was just this unmanageable state. <laughs> mm. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was good fun. Good feet. I loved fee. It's Good such time. a lovely, happy, light-hearted ballet. If it's ever mm. on again, yeah, it's definitely one to watch. Yes. I want to take you back to your days at school because in a previous mm. conversation you were talking about the fact that they were concerned about your height and then they were going to do some tests. So what kind of tests did they do? Um, yeah, I can't remember which hospital in London this was. So our height was taken and our weight um, the length of our leg, the length of our back, and then they immersed us in water. So, uh, and then measured the amount of water displacement. They then x-rayed our wrists because apparently the small bones in the wrist have gaps in between them and the gaps will close as you're growing. So the bones grow and expand. And they measure the distance between the bones and then they give... Uh, I think it was about three inches. Uh, they say you will grow to X or up to X. And I was, I, I actually grew to right bit in the middle, which was five foot five. And another guy who they also, it was also short. We went through the same thing together. And he, um, David Ashmole, uh, and then he grew to about five foot nine. <laughs> Shot past me. <laughs> Uh, and obviously, I think he became a principal. He went to Australian Ballet or a ballet company in Australia to be a principal out there. It was, yeah, but it was interesting, uh, their mechanism. And so as a, as a follow-up, um, I don't know, three, three or so years later, we went back to the hospital just so to show that their way, their technique was working. And the doc the same, it was the same doctor 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he said to me, I said, what are you doing now? Uh, did you have to give up ballet? I said, no, because they think that ballet dancers are all tall when in fact they're not. Uh, and I said, no, you know, there's character roles. There's all different things, different heights. Oh, oh, okay. Did you find that the that the height was an issue with playing certain roles? Were you restricted to certain roles or could you could you play more? Were you with the corps de ballet for certain things or what happened in the company? Let's go back to when I first started uh, at the Royal Ballet School. I realised then that everyone was tall. Well, in my eyes, they were tall. They were obviously <laughs> not because they're only 16 years old and fully grown. But there were very tall people there. And I knew then that I wasn't going to be a prince in Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty and all the other things. So I had to concentrate on other roles, joke, a jester or a puck or you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was the shortest in the company, but it worked for me. It worked for me. You know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I've got some decent soloist and principal roles. Um, yeah. Moving into London's Festival Ballet after leaving the Royal Ballet. London's Festival Ballet is now called English National Ballet. So I got some good roles there. Um, decent uh, principal roles that, that I did. And it's because of my the acting, the character work, etc. You used to, um, well, you were at the school or was it the company with Marion Tate, who was actually my ballet mistress when I was in the BRB? Mm. Marion was a year below me at the Royal Ballet School mm-hmm. um, and then joined... So I joined in January of 1968 and she joined in September of 1968. That was her graduation. I never got to graduate. I never, never did a graduation year. And then in, in, the, in the old Royal Ballet touring section, we, the younger ones and the occasional other ones, so five, six of us and two actors, would go on a, a, a smaller tour called Ballet for All, where we would do the principal roles. Mm-hmm. I think Katie Wade actually came on that tour because she was the Queen of the Willies and uh, Marion Tate was the Queen of the Willies as well. And there was a six foot dancer so, who was so, so much taller than Marion, who was very <laughs> short. And it, it's the commanding role. You know, the Queen of the Willies was yeah. commanding. And I played, um, what's the other guy in it? I wasn't the Prince. I wasn't Albrecht. Uh, because with an H. Anyway, so I, I, played that in the, and she and I did um Capalia together so I was Franz and she was Swan Hilda and so there's my um, little bit of glory partnering uh Marion Tate she's a lovely lady mm. lovely lady yeah so what was your reason for leaving the company uh it was a personal reason there was no injuries or anything like that I mm-hmm. had to look after my two children okay uh so I had to get myself a day job so I did some. I did a few years of sales management. One in um, British Gas when they did have showrooms. Then in B Jam, which was then bought out by what's the frozen food company now? Iceland. Big one. Iceland. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. bought out by Iceland. When I was in a, a, a musical in the West End called Billy, not the Billy. Okay. A musical of Billy Liar, and I was in it for about two and a half years. But in the first month, an electrician in the wings was talking to me about what's going on on Broadway. And they said, oh, they've got printed T-shirts for the shows. And of course, printed T-shirts in 1973 or 1974, whenever it was was on, didn't happen in the UK. So I came up with this idea and I called the company Show Shirts. That's easy to say without a gin and tonic. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and um, so I set up this business whilst I was in the show. Uh, I was imported my own T-shirts from Portugal and I had set up a print works as well. So I did Billy T-shirts, first of all, and then it spread to English National Opera, other shows that were, were in there. And then advertising agencies came to me to um, produce like 10,000 T-shirts for a promotion that they're doing. And it, it built up and up. Um, oh, I did not know that. Reasons, That's amazing. Yeah. And then for other reasons, I, I uh, sold the business. And that was, so that was during the performing years. So the guy that worked for me went into financial services. And when I was to, when I was in the B-Jam shop, mm-hmm. he said, he came in to see me. He said, you shouldn't be here. 
I'll recruit you to work in financial services. So I did that. I left a salaried job to do a commission only. And I went back to the people in show business that I'd worked with and did some business with them, but also found that they weren't really being looked after properly, either by accountants or by lawyers, etc. So I then set up a business management organization and built that up to look after people in show business. I had some very high profile people back then uh, from television uh, and film. And then there were the dancers and actors and musicians, uh, theatre designers as well that I had as clients. And I built that up and ran that for 15 years. And during that time, a lot of the people, when we finished our business uh, meeting, they would start offloading on me, offloading their personal issues. So I've obviously got one of those faces that you they, they think they, you can trust and talk, just like yours, Candy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, which is why what you're going to be doing now. So when I sold the business, I thought oh, I'd take early retirement. And after a couple of years, I got bored. And then I thought back to this offloading because I had no idea what to do with all this information. And I opened this magazine and, and in the back, there was an advert for a master's degree in psychotherapy. And I thought, is it, it's a sign. It it's a, a sign. sign. <laughs> and so <laughs> I spent £10,000 over two years studying to be a psychotherapist, uh, which is what I do now. So Counseling for Dancers is the uh, website, counsellingfordancers.com. And I've been doing that now since 2016, because I saw the general population from 2010, which is when I um, qualified up to 2016. And then um, a retired dancer came to see me having been uh, discharged from a psychiatric unit because they said, we don't have a psychotherapist here. You'll need to see one. And she found out about me and having been a dancer as well, she thought, great. And that is when I realized that dancers need therapists who were dancers to have gone through it all because they don't understand. And I Agreed. still... Uh, nowadays, I still ask the same question in, in the first session of a therapy session. Have you had previous therapy? And if they say yes, did it help? And they usually say no, because the therapist doesn't understand what I'm talking about for you know different language. And also doesn't understand a dancer's mindset right from an early age of age three, four, five. Yeah. And I started ballet when I was six years old. And that is where counselling for dancers came from. The fact that it was needed because the general population of therapists, even GPs, some of the patients say, um, I went to my GP with this anxiety that I've got. And they said, is dancing the career for you if you have so much anxiety? You know, a dancer doesn't want to hear that. No. Because they don't understand, you see. Yeah, I think you're right. You do have to have been a dancer or performer to understand the mindset. Because I think our work ethic our determination, you know, our focus, it is different. Maybe it is because of the discipline of the ballet. I mean, I think sometimes it can be seen as too hard, but I think it has its benefits in that the, the real drive that it gives you. It's like no other. It really is amazing. I actually did have a session with someone who wasn't a dancer and they were like, right, well, you know, we'll sign you off for a month and here's some antidepressants. And I was, and I said to the doctor, I remember, but that's not solving my problem. My issue is stage fright. And I, don't, I just didn't see how that was going to help. So I declined it. Yeah. I, I remember people thinking, well, that's silly. But I, I thought, but it's not, that's masking the problem. It's not getting to the root cause of the problem. Unfortunately for me, we couldn't get to the root problem before I left. But I think that's why I'm so fascinated by this is because mm. if you can help someone catching them before they fall to understand where they're coming from, you know, everybody's reason for stage fright is different. You know, mine was mm. sort of an external relationship, as I said in my first podcast, but the mm. impact that that had, it was incredibly difficult to, I just felt blindsided by everything. And some days I was even dancing and it was like I had this frosted glass 
glazed mm. over me like I was I was in the room but I wasn't really there and mm. I found that so hard to break through and I think I was like that for many years like I wasn't really really there and that's a hard thing to admit even today you know but I feel like I am present now so I can I can say it but there's I'm not the only one who's like that there's going to be so many people who are struggling so you know how wonderful to have you in that position to help people through their issues and there's so many issues there's stage fright there's there's eating disorders there's 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 a lot that's going on and it must be amazing to be able to to help them it is it is amazing and it's it's not from a sort of self ego point of view it's it's just to see you're going back on stage again or you're starting back or you're getting over an injury and that that causes a lot of um mental health issues as well an injury um you know and you were saying about what happened to you when you were an adult you know from from my training as a a Jungian psychodynamic psychotherapist it goes way back Mm -hmm. it goes way back perhaps uh, in utero what, what was happening to your mother at the time of of the pregnancy so all of this is, is carried forward. How, uh, what, what sort of situation were, was the household in when you were growing up? You know, the first seven years of life, a sort of program you for the rest of your life. And, and, and that's where dancers come in, you see. So those dancers that, that uh, start from 10, 12 upwards uh, are probably less likely to have issues then who started at age three, four, five, six, etc. Interesting. That time. Yeah, because it, it it is programmed in and it's solid. And mm. that's why I think, you know, all these years that I've been doing it with dancers, I and personally myself, I can see that all the neurodiverse traits um, are either there to start with or exacerbated by the ballet training. And so the development, all those positive things that you were talking about, you listed determination, drive, concentration, all of that are all neurodiverse traits. It's when they get carried too far, that's when they become detrimental. Yeah. And that's and so that's ADHD, so we'll we'll go through them all. Uh that the five main ones are dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia, ADHD, and ASD, autism spectrum disorder. And I've got this memory that's just come back to me. It's quite a funny story. So imagine me two and a half in a nappy. I did company class with the Royal Ballet. <laughs> that surely would have had an impact. I mean, I don't think I remember. I don't recall remembering it. But um, yeah, how funny. I mean, I was dancing from the age of two and a half. And the dancing school that I went to is Dorothy Colborne in Bath. Amazing school. It was strict, though. It was strict. I think that's just again, that's that's the way that it was. And mm-hmm. when we when I turned nine, Karen Paisley, she she retired and she began teaching at the school. And I remember everyone had their name tag so that Karen would know their name. And then the head teacher is screaming at me, going, Where's your name tag? Where's your name? And I'm like, But she's my auntie. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I think she'd remember my name. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so many memories, like, flooding back. I want to talk more about what you're doing now because I, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. That's why I'm studying it myself. And that's all credit to you. You know that. What do you think are the key things to having a good mental health in the dancing industry? You're Okay. It's the thought. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm good enough. Even though you don't feel like it in class and rehearsals, etc. I'm okay. I'm where I am at this time, at this moment. That's where I need to be. Mm. So don't compare yourself to anyone else. You compare yourself to yourself and the day before and where you are now. Yeah. Meditate every morning so give yourself the time and you say oh i've got to wake up earlier okay you wake up earlier 
15 minutes of meditation is like an hour's slit worth of sleep, an hour or two's worth of sleep. Yeah. I think research has been done for that. So don't worry about losing sleep or don't lose sleep over it. Do get up a bit earlier. 15 minutes, that's all you need to do just to still your mind and clear your mind. In, in the workshops that I do for um, ballet schools and, and uh, dance schools and dance companies, not just ballet, so mm -hmm. do musical theatre colleges as well, I get them to do this, this two-minute breathing meditation and suggest to the teachers, because I, I do a workshop for the faculty as well, suggest to the, to the, to the faculty to do this two minutes before the first class of the day. And it settles them. And one teacher said, yes, but I want them all pumped up. I want them all go. I said, what's the first exercise you do at the bar? It's plies. Yeah. You want them pumped up for plies, do you? No, because plies, it's just plies easing it's just, you it's just, in. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So they saw that. They said, oh, yeah, of course. Mm. So it's a warm-up. It's a warm-up before you start doing the Grand Allegro at the end of the class, which you, you can be pumped up and do. So it's all about stilling the mind and also trying to shout down. It's a shout down to start with, but you'll gradually get used to it. The inner voice, the critical voice. Mm. And the critical voice sometimes is, okay, you can do that a bit better, which is nice. It's a nice critical voice. But when you're stupid, what did you do that for? And the thing is, we talk as dancers like that all the time to ourselves. Would you ever say that to anyone else? So remember, if you think about your six-year-old, your seven, however old when you started, how would you speak to that person? That's how you should speak to yourself now. Definitely, definitely. And I, and I love that. I think it's important for people to to do the meditating, it's like preparing your mind and body for the day. Even if you're not dancing that day, I think that it's a really good thing to do for your mental state. And self-talk, yeah, my goodness, that's so powerful. I mean, I've been guilty over the years of saying, you're stupid, you're not good enough. And I know, I know where that's come from. I know there were times in my childhood where I've either heard it or felt it. And you do carry it with you. And yeah. it is a hard thing to to shake. So I do find myself even now, I'd be like, but, but you're a nobody. Why are you starting a podcast? And I go, because I've got something. And I'm almost yeah. talking to myself. It's, it, it's something that is working progress. And I think that everybody has a, it's sort of imposter syndrome, isn't it? Where some, you mm. just got that negative self-talk. But I'm at the moment, it's a, it's a two-way conversation, but it will dull down and just be, it will just be positive things. And if I'm having doubts, I just go, it's okay, Candy. Like, you know. That's it. Those, those, those few words are wonderful. It's okay. It's okay. It's wonderful words. I'm safe. And I think it's this, it's feeling unsafe that creates all of these anxieties. Yeah. And, and although it's a derogatory term when you say, ah, oh, it's all in your head. I mean, mm. it can be, sound like that. Well, unfortunately, it is. Yeah. Because we've created those thoughts ourselves and we create, once the thoughts are there, then the physical feelings are there and then you start feeling anxious and then it all builds up from there. But the thought starts the whole process. Yeah. So be careful what you think because, you know, our thoughts create our reality for us. What do you think about affirmations, like visual ones? Do you do you think that that's a good thing to have? I think my mum has it. I used to, I mean, I have vision boards now, so they're not words, it's pictures. Mm. Uh, that's that's the way that I can relate to things, communicate. And I've got a picture where there's a lady standing on a stage with an audience and it's like, I, I feel sort of empowered looking at it. Um, mm. My mum has the, you know, I am powerful, I am strong, all, all these things. Yeah. And although she's seeing it, sometimes I don't always feel like she's ingesting it. Um, so I was just wondering what your thoughts were about it. Well, you have to work out what your learning method is. Mm -hmm. So yours is visual. Yeah. So there's the visual, there's kinesthetic, and there's audio, I think. It's, yeah. There's a three. So you've got to figure out where your learning um Way, the way that you learn, which mm. one of those three. So for dancers, 
Yeah, I, and I and I use this in the um, faculty workshops. I said, if you're standing, if you're looking at the mirror, so you're looking away from a dancer, and you are setting the next exercise verbally, if they're not auditory learners, then they're not going to pick it up. They're going to be looking around, seeing other students or other dancers um, physically doing mm. what you're saying, and they've lost it by then because it, the trans it gets lost in translation as well. So you figured out what your learning method is, so it's visual. Um, so if, if, it, if a visual dancer can't see what the teacher is doing, they're not going to be able to pick up. And so the teacher needs to do all three. So all three different types of, of learning will, will soak in. So for affirmations, mood boards, things like that, yeah. you'd have to figure out first. So do you like listening to podcasts, listening to affirmations? So that's the auditory one. Mm -hmm. Or do you like reading it or seeing it? Or do you like... Well, you'd say it yourself. You'd say it yourself because that, that's probably the kinesthetic because you're getting the vibration of the sound in your head by saying it to yourself. Write on a mirror, I am enough. Don't allow it to become wallpaper. Look at it and say it. So you're doing a double thing. You're doing visual and auditory and kinesthetic because you're getting the vibration of, of what you're saying. It's always best to write your own because they will resonate you because you've thought about them and you've written them down. You can go through these thousands of them on the internet, but the best thing to do would be to look at those and then perhaps put it in your own words. It's always best that way. Yeah, definitely. So do you find it's been a difficult process helping performers to speak out about their issues, especially during their dancing days? You know, as we're known to be always strong and glamorous you know from the outside looking in that's how we're perceived so have you found that's been an issue in itself definitely you know right from that early age you're in class you do what the teacher says you don't say a word um, because in the old days you say a word I don't want to know about your injury I don't want to know what pain you're in I don't want to know if you've got a headache I don't want to know that your grandma's just died I just want to see you dance. You leave all of that outside the studio. And that's the way that we've been taught right from the beginning. So going up into the company, um, you just do what you're told. And there's also that showing us, you don't want to show a sign of weakness. Oh, you don't want to do that because it's, <laughs> it's, it's a tough career. You've got to be tough. Uh, you show a sign of weakness and you probably won't get another contract. And so the fear is put into us and, and the fear needs to be dissolved to know that you are human, you are a person, you are not a robot. Um, and so in the sessions where it's needed, in my therapy sessions where it's needed, I will teach, get them to formulate a way of assertive communication that is right for them so that they have a right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people do struggle with that. Just thinking back over the career, you know, it, it was just external problems outside the door. You just, mm. you didn't speak. You don't have a voice. I mean, mm. that's probably why my relationship impacted my dancing so much was because I couldn't really say what was going on. I mean, I I would always brush it off and say, oh, I felt embarrassed. But I think you, you're right. We're, we're wired to think, well, we can't show weakness by saying, I have an issue. You just have to go, mm. that's there. I'll visit that later. Right now is about how I dance, but how how you're feeling and what's going on around you, that's going to affect how you dance. So it really of does it matter. Is. And, and it erodes, it erodes all that you've learned throughout your dancing career and, and, and dancing life. So all of that is eroded. And as you said, you had this frost, frosted glass over you, and that's the erosion right. of it because you couldn't actually concentrate on what you were doing. Wow. I mean, that started happening, yeah, in the third year of the company. And I didn't pick up the steps quite as quickly as I used to, things like that. And I started to say to 
that awful thing, like you're stupid. Then it started to come back. Just the memories come back of that now. I remembered before that, I was so quick at picking up steps. I could look at a dance step and just know it. It, it was mm. amazing, actually. And there was one point where Desmond Kelly, he set an exercise and he knew that I knew it. So Candy demonstrate. Okay, fine. But then there was one particular day I'd had a terrible, terrible argument with my boyfriend at the time. And I was shaken to my core. My honestly, just, it was an awful, awful, awful morning. And he could see that I didn't pick up steps. He said, Candy, off you go. And I had no idea. So I remembered how it started. I did a few chenets, it was from the corner. And then I started tap dancing because I didn't know what come next. Did a cartwheel and finish. <laughs> because I had no clue what I was doing. Well, at least but you covered it up. It. <laughs> I covered it up, but then I think everybody else had to do the same. That was quite funny. But it was, <laughs> he instantly saw, she's not. So I'm going to challenge her. But it was good. I think that was a really good thing because it, it woke me up to be like, when I'm in class, I really do have to be present. And But that became less and less as time went on and I was just more vacant. It's, it's really difficult. I mean, people have issues within the dancing, you know, it's... Um, if they want to be thinner, that's, that's a very, very, very big issue, I know. Feeling like they're not as good as other people again competing against others which like you said and I totally agree you compete with you you know you're trying to better yourself doesn't matter about the other people in the studio but you do you obviously in the school there is a little bit of competition but when you're in the company especially then it's how am I doing how can I grow how can I be the best that I can possibly be but when you're not feeling that like that you're not speaking. And when you've got external problems, you're not speaking. It's, yeah. I mean, what, what do you find has been the most amazing part of all of this? Are people speaking out now? Is it lengthening their careers? Or is it people that have, are speaking now because they weren't able to speak when they were actually performers? Well, they are, for that, for that reason, yes, uh, your last one, they are now speaking because they have no fears of losing a job or anything like that. But the, there is still the fear. And the fear comes from the top and the fear comes from the bottom. So the fear comes when you start training. So if, if the old school way is still there, the, the old people that are still running the dancing schools, that will carry on. And the artistic directors and the, and the, the management, the dance management, if they're still of the old school, then it will still be there. Now, you mentioned about lengthening careers. Now, so my theory is, and it hasn't been proved because um, I really like some someone, a dance researcher to come to me and say, we need to do this research. The research is that if there is less fear of going wrong or showing a sign of weakness, then there will be less injuries because you're not pushing yourself to an extreme of once again, once again from the top, let's do that again. There's not that. And, and I've also got a technique, which I, if there's enough time, I can tell you about. So if you, if the dancer doesn't push themselves to beyond their capabilities, I'm not saying they don't push themselves and they're lazy, beyond their physical capabilities mm -hmm. and the tiredness comes in, um, then there won't be the injuries because that's when the injuries start. Because what, the dancers are fit enough to do to do their work, but pushing themselves beyond their capabilities when they're tired, that's when the injuries are. And then the injuries carry on. And you get injured again and again and again. So the repeated injuries. That shortens your career. So if there's no fear in speaking up for yourself to say, actually, I'm um, feeling mentally bad at the moment. I, I can't come in or I, I can't do this. Um, or uh, this injury is getting worse, I need to stop, then they won't have the injuries and that will lengthen their careers mm. and the, the mental health will also improve. That's really interesting. 
But it needs it needs proof. It needs research yes. to prove to the management that this is what needs to be done. Mm. And they're not going to listen to me. Who am I? It's definitely something that needs to be done. That would be fascinating. I remember a girl in my year. She was she was injured, but she was doing uh, one of the lead roles in the school performance, and she was just like she was masking it. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I think she's had several injuries throughout her career. She's still dancing now and she's amazing. But would would those injuries have not been there had she just relaxed? But if you say to someone, you're injured, they take you out. And then there's that real insecurity, like, am I going to be able to go back to where I am or are they, am I replaceable? That I think that's the thing. Mm. Would you be well, replaced? We're, we're all replaceable. We are, mm. we are all replaceable. True. Um, and that's what, what you just explained there is the fear. Yeah. And so you're going to show that you're strong enough to go through the performance with an injury and they praise you for it, which, which is um, just compounding the fact that you don't say anything, otherwise you're going to be out. You said there was an exercise that you do. Oh yeah. So I've used I've used this a lot um, both in the therapy sessions and in coaching. So for for dancers who have come to me with injuries and mental health issues, I've done the coaching with with that, and it, it comes from athletics, the sports side of things. It's visualizing what you're doing. So the the muscles don't have to be used when you visualize. So the brain and your thought and, and what you're visualizing you're doing creates the same energy, the same like electric current that goes like as if you were doing it. Mm -hmm. So you can work through your injuries as if you didn't have an injury by visualizing it. Um, and it was, I, I watched this this uh, this clip, and the, all the the athletes were sort of plugged in, wired in, and they did the visualization of their run or their jump or whatever it was, and the muscles were receiving the signals. I've heard this, yeah, from the brain. Mm. Um, what they're not doing is adding a third aspect to it. The third aspect is feeling. So the, that feeling needs to be added to it. So, so there was this dance. It wasn't a dance. So it was a, it was a theater train or something like that. They asked me to come and do, give a talk. So I did that and I used this. I said, is anyone having difficulty with um, pirouettes, for instance? And this girl put her hand up. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And I went through the process with her. Adding the excitement to it, the excitement of actually doing one, two, three periods or whatever it was that we were doing. I said, okay, now here's the tester. You stand up. Do you mind doing this? Do you mind? Oh, no, you're all right. Okay. You stand up and do the pirouettes. So she did. And I think she did two pirouettes and she burst into tears. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what's happening? And I said, are you all right? She said, yes, the tears are happiness. I have never been able to do pirouettes before. Oh. So she's never done pirouettes. And do, just this visualization of her doing it and adding the feeling to it, yeah. she was able to, she, she fell a bit, but she did two pirouettes and she'd never been able to turn before. Oh, that's so, so wonderful. It works. Mm. It really works. And so, from an American dancer in an Eastern European com company came to me for, um, mental health issues. And I said, you got anything else? He says, yeah, I can't do a double soda bath to the left. And I've got this um, solo to do. So I say, you could do it to the right. Yeah. Okay. So we visualize it doing to the right. What does it feel like? Feels good. Okay. Well then take that feeling and now do it to the left. And he was, oh no, I can't do it to the left. Okay. You're telling yourself yeah. you can't do it to the left. We then worked out what happened to stop him doing it to the left some years before something had happened. I think he caught his foot on a flat as he was going around on the wings of the stage and that stopped him doing the double to double soda bars to the left. We then work through 
and watched watched the flat dissolve. So we, we got it out of his way and I said, now you do it again, what you were meant to be doing, and it's not going to be there. So he did it again. He said, yeah, I could do it. I said, okay, let's go through the proper visualization and add the feelings to it. And he reported back the following week. He said it was brilliant. He said, I did it. I'd never done it before uh, in, in that solo that, that he had to do. Wow. So it works. Yes. But the scientific way of doing it cuts out the emotions. Mm. There's so many people that, uh, you know, you have a bad side. Why is it the bad side? You know, mm. that was always my left side. I was talking about with the like a recent podcast, you know, it's like, oh, left side, don't get a look in. You know, it's just like, you, but you're you're blocking it, aren't you? You're, you're getting in, in your own way from something that happened. I think I did fall quite badly on a triple pirouette to the left when I was uh, 14, I think. And then I just had such a thing about it. And that carried on. And it still carries on. Oh, left side, afraid of it. Mm. You know, I can do it. I can just about do it. I can get by. But that's me telling myself I can just about do it, get by. Oh, yeah, you're still saying just. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, that's that's what, that's the thing, (laughs) isn't it? Like, isn't it fascinating? Mm. Yeah. That's what I said earlier about be careful what you say to yourself. And the other thing is, in class and in rehearsals, whenever whenever you're learning something, you you visualize it, and then do it. If you've got the chance, if you're not the first up, you visualize it and then you do it. So you've got the music at least that yeah. plays it. In rehearsals, if the artistic director says, "Oh, that was dreadful," once again, go on, do it again from the top. Instead of saying that, said, "Okay, now visualize what you're doing." And do it as well as you you know that you can phys- mm. physically do. Um, and then bring the excitement into that. The other thing is that the brain can only take a certain amount in. So when you're learning something new, and especially if it's in rehearsals, um, after an hour, you just need two minutes for the brain to recalculate itself and go over. And that's all you need to do. You don't need to think about anything. Just think about a wonderful scene or a sunset or something like that. Just for two minutes, just something else. And the brain will reset itself and it'll be... It's like going on holiday and coming back and start starting fresh again. Yeah. You know, change is as good as a rest, the old saying says. So two minutes is as good as a rest. Do nothing. What great advice. That's such good yeah, advice. Who's, who's, as I said, who's going to listen to me? Oh, we've done it this way for... 900 years, so we're going to carry on doing it. <laughs> no, but it, it's, a, it's such a good point because, you know, when you're practicing something, you're getting really frustrated that it's not working and you keep going and you keep going when actually what you need to do is a, act, just pause. Yes. Think about something else for two minutes, yes. you know, and then, and then go back to it. I can, I can imagine an artistic director that, that, that I know would just turn around and go, what a load of cobblers. <laughs> And and this is that this is the mindset that they have. Oh, and it worked for us when we were, you know, back then. This is where we just work through it. Yeah, but things change. If they only knew. Yeah. What do you think is the most amazing part of the job that you do now? If it's a workshop, it's the people's faces. It's the students or the dancers or the performers' faces when there's realizations that they come to. In whatever aspect and the thanks at the end oh wow I learned so much today and um and then with the patients it's seeing them in the final session you know the wind up session uh to let them go on their way by themselves because it's no good having that continual attachment they need to go out by themselves you know they do come back sometimes at a six months or four months just to, like a top up to mm-hmm. see how they're doing but it, it's it's after the initial lot it's um, the eating disorders patients it's seeing them not just put on weight but coming to a different realization and getting rid of the anorexic voice and all of that that uh you know they they've combated it that must be that must be so rewarding and so wonderful mm. to see I mean, I hear so many stories where they're saying, you know, she's she's put on weight or he's put on weight, so he's fine now. But that doesn't mean that the person is fine. 
It's just maybe the exterior looks fine. Yeah, an eating disorder is a symptom. It's not, and it's no good just dealing with the symptom. There's something back in your childhood that's created it. And you, we go through piece by piece as to what has been said and what has been implied during their growing up, whether it's parents, whether it's teachers, whether it's neither of those, but it's their idea and listening to other students, peer groups. It's interesting what you were saying, you know, that it's from, it's from way back, from your childhood. Perhaps even, you know, when, you're, when your mum was pregnant with you, you know, going way, way back. So when, when people are saying, you know, oh, it was that teacher's fault or it was my peer's fault or, you know, blaming, it's something within you. Everybody's different. And you've got to be so careful how you speak to people. You can't just speak to a class of 10 and say the same thing. It needs to be like, it needs to be very, very personal. I think a, a teacher-student relationship in that, okay, this is how this student ticks. So this is how I'm going to approach it. And maybe that's what's slightly missing mm-hmm. at the moment, but probably working on. But I think that that is the main problem is that, you know, you're treating everybody the same way, yet so, so different. We're all so different. We are. We're individuals. And, and that's the thing that I impress not only on the patients, but on uh, um, the workshops. Everyone is unique. Work on your uniqueness. Don't work on what other people look like and what they say and what they do. It's your own uniqueness that you work on. And I, this is what I found straight away at the Royal Bali School. I had to work on my uniqueness and I succeeded. And I think that's so, so great for people to, to take on board and not just dancing in every aspect of life, you know, be you, love you, do what is good for you. It's very powerful. Terry, I'm going to, I'm going to have to end it there. Cause I mean, we, we could talk for days about all this. It's just been, it's been so wonderful. So, and what a pleasure to have you on the show. Is there anything else you want to sign off with? Yeah, the final word is uh, that I've set up a charity called Steps. Uh, well, it's got double P in it, which is support, training, education, psychotherapy, performance, solutions. Um, and it, as it says, it's uh, been set up to support dancers' mental health, dancers of any genre. And it's extending my work. So I'm bringing in people like you um, for referrals, for therapy sessions, getting bringing other people in to do my workshops. Um, and the first project is to get some funding for freelance dancers or freelance teachers to train as mental health first aid trainers to go around all the schools, big and small, to have at least one mental health first aider in each school. That's our first project. And that uh, we're going to be announcing in the launch December, um, all of that. But So watch this space, that space, I don't know. Yes, that's incredible. What an achievement. I think that you are always striving for more, but not, not, I mean, obviously it's going to be amazing to do that for yourself, but you are so much about helping people and you're just, what can I do? What's the next step? Mm. Steps, <laughs> you know, you know, like just keep Steps, growing yeah. and changing. Yeah. <laughs> just wonderful. You're, you're a wonderful man, Terry. Really thank you are. very much, Candy. And thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. What I adore most about Terry is his wonderful sense of humor and his clear passion to help others. It was such a wonderful chat. I was left reflecting for quite a while about it. And I will definitely be doing more meditation and definitely work on my self-talk. Hopefully, even if you're not in the performing arts, you'll give his techniques a try They really, really do work. To learn more about Terry, head to counsellingfordancers.com. I have put the link in the show notes plus his socials. 
I've also put links to my socials and my Patreon if you want to see more behind the scenes. Make sure you tune into the next episode, which is the Christmas special, and it will be released on Christmas Eve. It is truly magical. You must not miss it. Bye for now.